Periods are something that many people experience almost monthly. But what they didn't expect is for it to become heavier, more painful after the COVID-19 vaccination. And that isn't the only thing. Some people had lighter and shorter periods. Others bled despite going through menopause, being on birth control or undergoing hormone replacement therapy. And now we're all worried. What do these changes mean for our periods and how does it impact our reproductive health, if at all? We sat down with Dr. Nagat Arif, a GP with a special interest in women's health, to answer your questions about the COVID-19 vaccination and the menstrual cycle. Stay tuned. Welcome to season three of the Growth Medium podcast. My name is Mim and I'm a biochemistry graduate from Queen Mary and, as you can guess, a co-host of the Growth Medium. And my name is Sarah, a second year medical student and the other co-host of The Growth Medium. This season, we talk to experts like Dr. Nigat Arif and Dr. Eleanor Craighorn. Together, we unpack the myths and misinformation around women's health. We are also joined by many, many brave individuals who honoured us by sharing their stories and experiences with things like PCOS, endometriosis and more. Join us every Monday here on The Growth Medium so we can grow our mindsets together. Enjoy! Welcome back to this week's episode of The Growth Medium podcast. As you heard earlier, Sarah and I are joined today by Dr. Nigat Arif to talk about the COVID-19 vaccination and your period. It can be such a confusing topic, COVID and everything associated with it, and many people are worried whether changes in their period can be normal or not, and what this might mean for their long-term health. So we're really glad to be able to talk to you today, Nigat. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Hello. So, Nigat, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you to becoming a GP with a special interest in women's health? Oh, that's such a good question, because actually I wasn't going to become a GP. I was going to become a gastroenterologist and then had a a change in heart when I did a GP part of my training as an F2 and just really enjoyed the fact that I was seeing everything and anything. And I didn't actually want to do women's health until I would say I was in the final year of my training as a GP and the reason I did women's health was because it's 50% of my workload that I was seeing as a registrar and also I was seeing a lot of uh, women's health medical problems which weren't I felt being dealt properly I worked in around Slough and Southall so a huge population of ethnic minority women I'm Punjabi I speak Punjabi and Urdu fluently I'm from Pakistan and um, I found that the issues that they were coming across constantly with me were Either we didn't have a solution to or we were saying, oh, it's head to toe pain or, for example, that it was depression and giving them antidepressants when actually women were complaining of either endometriosis, which was going misdiagnosed. They were having polycystic ovarian syndrome, which wasn't being pieced together or they were in their midlife and it was actually menopausal symptoms. So the aches and pains they were describing wasn't because they were lacking vitamin D, (laughs) which we seem to think all Asian women are. So it was really the issues that I saw around health inequality around women's health particularly those from my ethnic minority community that I thought I want to do something to help with this because I can use my bilingual skills to make that a little bit better yeah 
And that's so interesting because it's unfortunate about the health inequalities that we do have, especially when it comes to women. We've actually done a couple of episodes about that and we're learning a lot about it and how women's symptoms are often underlooked or misdiagnosed, especially with endometriosis. So yeah, it's really interesting that you got into women's health that way. I didn't even realise you could be a doctor who's working in women's health without being an OBGYN until I came across you. So, How does that work? If you don't mind explaining a little bit more interested yes so what I did is I was really lucky that I did six months of obstetrics and gynecology as part of my training so when you start doing your rotations as a GP you rotate almost a broad spectrum of specialities because you take those skills from secondary care into your surgery and then I was then even more lucky that the GP that I was training under she was a menopause and contraceptive specialist so did family planning in the surgery so I was very early on from I would say second year of my training as a GP started learning how to put in in coils and then later on the implants and discussing family planning with women so marina and copper coils and then using the marina coil as part of hormone replacement therapy so the progesterone component of it and then the other great thing is is that I really found there were loads of at the time of my training and it still is the case you can then do uh, specialist clinics which are run by the GP so if it was something more complex that for example needs a surgery like laparoscopy then the consultant gynecologist obstetric gynecologist would get involved but heavy periods painful periods so menorrhagia dysmenorrhea irregular periods patients that might need family planning advice patients that might need an emergency copper coil actually they can all be done in community medicine so we ran specialist clinics and that's where I got my experience and then I did my qualifications as part of that so I did the DRCOG which is the diploma from the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists I did my DFSRH which is the family planning diploma and then I went off and got my letter of competence to do coils and marina coils so that's how you then gain your years of experience and then call yourself a GP with a, a niche specialist subject as women's health wow that's that's quite interesting i'll keep i'll keep a note of that then when i'm <laughs> looking into my own future it's it they were known uh, we were originally known as gypsies so gps with special gypsies yeah gypsies <laughs> So GPs with specialist interests. And the reason being is because it was really a money-saving exercise from the NHS. We realised that actually women, uh, lots of medicine need a holistic approach. And the GP mm. looks at everything from head to the yeah. toe. Whereas an obstetrist yeah. and gynaecologist will only look at the womb, mostly, sometimes. Mm. Because they are more thinking along the lines of, do I need surgery? Or an investigation like a mm. laparoscopy for the patient. So a lot of women don't need a you know, a C-section, <laughs> thankfully. A lot of women don't need laparoscopy. What they need is management of their menorrhagia, for example, and that can be done in community medicine. So therefore, a whole range of specialities was given, offered up to GPs because it made sense financially to do it in-house. So I've got GP colleagues who do joint injections. So they're GPs with specialist intramusculoskeletal. So they're not orthopedic doctors, but they do musculoskeletal. So I also work as a GP who's got a dermatology specialism. So she looks at all skin lesions in our surgery. And you have, as a GP, you're self-employed. And um, so once you qualify, that's it. You've got your GMC license, your uh, c clinical competence training certificate to go away and practice as a GP. But then you've got to be able to sell yourself to a practice because these are individual businesses as well. So when you go and ask for a job, what is it that's going to make you stand out from all the other candidates that's come for that job? So I go along and I say, well, I'm a general physician, I'm a GP and I've got my training, but I also do 
all of these other skills as well. So I do menopause care, I do coils, I can bring that money into the surgery because women won't have to go into other centres or hospitals to have a coil insertion. I also do family planning as well. So I bring skills to the practice. So the idea is, is that rather than patients going always to secondary care, which is more expensive, for the NHS to do a referral that we try and deal with many things in-house as possible. So general practice is limitless on how many. I've got a GP colleague who's a sports uh, physio specialist with um, the Chelsea football team. So on his weekends, he's a GP, but then when Chelsea have matches, he goes and looks after the footballers and provides the musculoskeletal support, but he's a GP as well. So he looks after their other general medical problems and saves them going and to book an appointment. So it's amazing what you can do. Okay, that's a really cool job. <laughs> it is. It makes, it makes a lot of sense, but how is this the first time I've heard of this? That surprises me because you're a medical student. I know, right? It's concerning as well. <laughs> I know. Um, the thing is, is that unfortunately, general practice is seen as very fuddy-duddy profession. I know when I was at medical school and I was at Barts in the London, it was never a career that was ever offered up, which is why we have a national shortage of GPs, which is why patients are complaining that they can never see their GP because we don't have enough people who are attracted enough to go into the speciality. Uh, because it is seen as that you go into your surgery, it's not as sexy as doing cardiothoracic medicine, is it? Um, but actually, um, there there is so many other skills. So uh, I'm what's known as a portfolio GP. So as well as being a GP that does family planning, I do lots of media work. So I'm the resident doctor on This Morning and BBC Breakfast. I do TikToks and articles, which is how you guys found me because I do a lot around women's health. So I have three different careers. I'm a GP, I do women's health and I'm a media doctor. Thank you for sharing um, your journey to becoming a GP so far. It's really interesting because I didn't realise you could go further and specialise into something. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners didn't realise that either. But let's go into the episode. So before we talk about the menstrual cycle part of it, let's talk about the vaccinations. So right now we have a couple of vaccinations that are available in the UK. There's Moderna, there's Pfizer. I think Johnson & Johnson's available now. Could you explain how these vaccines work? We first have to understand basic immunology and also how all vaccines work. So I won't go into a lot of depth because your listeners will get very bored with that. But the way that all vaccines work is we give a little bit of the virus, whatever virus it might be, show it to your immune system and say, here, this is the virus that's going to come and attack you soon, get prepared. And your body makes antibodies against it. So those are your cells ready to look after you in case a real infection comes along. So each COVID-19 vaccine causes an immune system response. And what happens is that all the vaccines have this harmless burden version of a spike-like structure on the surface of the COVID-19 virus called the S protein. Now the S protein is really important so I'll explain how that works. So when you have things like Pfizer and Moderna they are known as messenger RNA vaccines. What they do is that they're a type of vaccine that use genetically engineered messenger RNA to give your cells instructions on how to make the S protein found on the surface of COVID-19 virus. So after vaccination, your immune system tells your cells to begin making S protein, so these little surfaces cells. And then when that happens, your body makes antibodies ready to fight when the actual infection comes along. The messenger RNA gets destroyed instantly. 
So it's not something that lingers around. And although it's modified messenger RNA, it never gets into the nucleus of the cell and affects your DNA at all. So that's really important. Then you've got vector vaccines. Vector van vaccines is what you mentioned earlier. So the Janssen and Janssen and the AstraZeneca vaccine. What they've done is they've got a modified virus, killed it, because they don't need that virus, and used it as a vector, as a host, to put in a little bit of the COVID-19 virus. Then that gets injected into your body. Your immune system goes, oh my gosh, this is a virus, but it's a dead part of the virus. We don't actually, it's not live. And then again, it makes those S proteins, which trigger off an antibody response. The vector virus does not cause any damage to your cells or your immune response or actually alter your DNA, which is what a lot of people have this misgiving that it does do. And these are some of the myths that we've been hearing. Then there's the Novax vaccine. The Novax vaccine it hasn't been rolled out in the UK, but it is across the world. So um, for your listeners who might be concerned about that one, because that's a protein subtype vaccine. Very similar uh, principle again. The subtype vaccine is only parts of the virus that they take away. Again, show it to your immune system. And this, the parts of the virus contain harmless S proteins already. S proteins go along, show your immune system, hello, we're here, this is what we're going to do, we're going to attack you. Your immune system goes, uh-uh, makes antibodies. So it's like mugshots of this virus, primed and ready for when the actual live virus comes along and then it destroys it. Let's go on to periods now. So a lot of women have reported quote unquote changes. So whether it be heavier menstrual cycles, so heavier periods or lighter, delayed, etc. after taking the vaccine. And I think it the Medicine and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency received over 13,000 yellow cards with reports of these changes. So can you tell us why these changes might be occurring? So the first thing is, is that these are normal changes. Weirdly enough, we know a lot about vaccines causing it. So flu vaccine also causes changes to the period. And we give flu vaccines every year to over, you know, this year, the plan is to give it over to 35 million people. We also know that also the HPV vaccine, so the vaccine that we give to girls to prevent cervical cancer and to boys to prevent throat and penile cancer, that Obviously, in boys, it doesn't cause period problems, but in girls, we've known that to be historically true as well. The yellow card system, people get very confused about the yellow card because they think it co- it means causation. It doesn't. The yellow card system is an MRHA pharmacovigilance system put in place so that if someone has an adverse reaction, even if it's something that we know about, like, for example, paracetamol, you fill out that yellow card system and you send it to the MRHA because we have an internal vigilance analysis setup that looks for, did it actually get caused by that thing, by that paracetamol or by that antibiotic that we gave you against that virus? So these are self-reported incidents that are happening. But actually, the reason that they're self-reporting is because this is what's, I would say, air quotation mark, newer vaccine. The vaccine is not actually new because it's using the same principles like messenger RNA, which has been around since 1961. So we've had data from, you know, that sort of the use of that vaccine, the mechanism of it, how it works, as I explained earlier, the way it makes S protein for over 20, 30 decades. But because this is a new virus, the whole world is fixated on it. The research is better. Generation Z and millennials are glued onto the internet. We're Googling more. And everybody thinks that they're a medical professional now, which is fine. That's great that people are so aware of their health. But it means that you're getting misinformation or parts of the information if you don't have a baseline 
knowledge of how your immune system works and also how your reproductive system works. So women are going, but my periods have been affected. But your periods were affected with the flu vaccine. You just didn't report it and you probably didn't notice it or you probably didn't put the link together. But because now you're aware of it, you're now going, ah, you're joining up the dots. So that's why we're having a lot more reported cases. I also had the Pfizer vaccine and my periods became irregular. So this is not something that's unusual. When I had the flu vaccine two years ago, I do actually remember that I started my periods earlier than I would have. Did I worry? Did I report it? No, I didn't because actually I knew, oh, okay, I've had the flu vaccine. I had a temperature and a cold and I was feeling really achy. So it's not unusual that actually this is going to affect my cycle because we know that there are other responses that also affect our cycles as women. So having a stress response or an immunological response. So think back last time that you had, I don't know, um, a sore throat or a fever, or even if you were really stressed or you'd lost weight because you were trying to exercise and you wanted to lose weight, did that affect your cycles? A lot of women would notice that it, it did. Stress is the biggest reason why our cycles get affected naturally anyway. It's interesting that you bring up the stress and the immunological response as well. So we know that stress obviously is one of the indicators, is one thing that can change your menstrual cycle. And a lot of people when they're going to get their vaccine they might be a little stressed about that they might be a little nervous about you know is this going to hurt is this the side effects people have a lot of maybe misinformation in their heads that might be making them a little bit more stressed so that's definitely one of the things that can affect it and then also an immune response does change your period as well because the is it the endometrial lining or the uterine lining that's part of the immune system so those are the kind of two theories rolling around right now about why the vaccine's probably impacting the menstrual cycle. The I think a lot of people are worried about whether this affects their sex hormones, so things like estrogen, progesterone, whether the vaccine has any impact on that. Um, and I think people are worried about it because those hormones are obviously important for fertility. Is there any way that the vaccine can affect these hey, hormones? I hope you're enjoying this episode so far. So that we can continue making great episodes like this, please consider supporting us over on Ko-fi. Link is in the show notes. So no, very simple answer to that <laughs> yeah. one. They cannot affect these hormones. Straight to the point. Okay, right, let me break it down for you. Your female hormone, your follicle-stimulating hormone and your luteinizing hormone, the reason those hormones are released and they're released from the brain and they're released a little bit from our ovary as well. The reason they're released is because your body is on a monthly basis, on a monthly cycle, wants you to get pregnant and you don't get pregnant because obviously you've got a life to lead. You want to have a career. You don't want to be pregnant every month. And that would be awful if you were pregnant every month because we'd have millions of babies everywhere. But actually those hormones are telling your ovaries because your ovaries have a set number of eggs in them. You are born with those eggs and it's decided in the womb, in vitro, when you're a tiny baby. So you come with those eggs. If those eggs don't get fertilized, the lining of the womb where your immune system sits, because we need that, because the immune system sits there because it thinks, I'm going to get pregnant, and if I have a baby, I need to look after this clump of cells until it becomes a baby. But when it doesn't become pregnant, the lining of the womb goes, oh, well, that was a waste of my time, wasn't it? And you shed the lining. That's literally what happens, because your body just goes, why didn't I fall pregnant? This is awful. And so as a response to that, it says, well, I don't need this lining because the thing I wanted to happen hasn't happened. So it comes away. And that's exactly why when we have 
vaccines given to us, the immune response that we have, such as a headache, a temperature, remember it's making antibodies, it takes two weeks for the vaccines to make antibodies, that immune response in the lining of the womb also gets activated as well because your immune system is everywhere. Your immune system is there to protect you and also to protect, particularly in women, the new life that you should be creating because we're animals and we should be having, you know, procreating willy-nilly, but we don't do that. And therefore, what happens is, is when the vaccine is given to you and it gets destroyed, the lining of the womb, you don't fall pregnant or you're not pregnant, and then it comes away. It does not affect the function of your ovaries where your hormones are, your FSH and your LH, because that's a separate process to allow your reproductive cycle to happen. Therefore, we know that all vaccines, every vaccine that we've ever given in, since Edward Jenner's time has never affected reproduction. And I guess that just leads on to the fact that we shouldn't be seeing fertility issues with the vaccine. No. And the reason that the people get very worried is because there's a couple of reasons why. It's because when we look at clinical data and trial data, there is a gender bias in regards to getting women enrolled into these trials. Fertility is really important to us. As much as we say, oh, you know, we're modern and we, you know, people want to have children-free lives, etc. Our genetic and humanological makeup is to procreate almost every faith strand tells you to procreate you know every culture tells you to procreate it's within our mindset and it's more on the woman to procreate as well because it's seen as she is the person that has to be able to make more babies for us and therefore we've always been hesitant even in the medical sector to explain not to experiment is the wrong word, but to put fertile childbearing women into trials, it's, and men are the people that we use first. So I'll give you a classic example of data that's always been done on men. For example, testosterone, we've always thought is in men, and that's it. But did you know that women produce testosterone and we produce it in our ovaries? And after menopause, 50% of your testosterone reduces. Oh. 50 yeah and we need it as women we need it for bone we need it for our lubrication of our brain cells so it prevents dementia we need it for our libido as well but if you hit menopause say 45 and your libido goes down the cliff and you don't want to have sex anymore and you don't feel that you you're healthy anymore and you feel that your memory is going and you're getting aches and pains well, that's okay because you're a woman you've passed your fertility years because you're only useful for that period of time but actually, women now live much longer than men. So why shouldn't women be having amazing sex lives? And why shouldn't we be thinking about the testosterone levels? Could women also have it as well? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting thing. Because again, I think the general public, when it comes to women's health, we think of the classic hormones, estrogen, progesterone. We don't really think... We, we kind of know about um, NSH and FSH in terms of the general public. But things like testosterone we don't really know about how those are beneficial to us. So thank you on for touching on that a little bit. Because it's so vital that we know about testosterone because polycystic mm -hmm. ovarian syndrome gets misdiagnosed, affects so many women. And actually we haven't fully understood that hormone because we just haven't researched women. We, I mean, why not? Yeah. Because polycystic ovarian syndrome is an all over body condition puts a woman at high risk of increasing her weight even though she's trying to lose her weight as much as possible puts her at risk of having diabetes heart disease earlier 
I mean, surely these are preventative things. If we're thinking about heart disease and diabetes and high blood pressure and increased weight gain, and we know that they are modifiable factors which are preventable for other health conditions, why are we not thinking that when it comes to polycystic ovarian syndrome? And educating women around it and, and researching around testosterone. That's where it all lies, isn't it? In education. That's what we're doing here today. That's great. So we said that a lot of these changes perhaps were unexpected. People didn't realise they were happening, except in this situation, they were because of the high focus on COVID-19. But I think one question that could rise, I mean, we've talked about it already briefly, we've touched upon it, that why, well, not really actually, why weren't these changes noticed in clinical trials? Or if they were, why, why weren't they, I don't know, expressed? So there's, an, there's a number of theories. I don't know because I wasn't part of the clinical trials, but I've discussed this extensively because I'm part of Team Halo, which is a doc, group of doctors who work in partnership with the UN and London School of Tropical Medicine. So we are trying to advocate the use of vaccines and how they are beneficial for us. And I've actually, in part of those, the part of our team, we've actually got the researchers who are part of the Oxford-AstraZeneca research team, and they did the clinical trials as well. And there's a number of theories that they've had. One is is that gender bias data, purely that, unfortunately, because the level of participants that we've had, we had more men than women. We did um, lack in the trial uh, just getting participation from women who probably were thinking of having a baby or were pregnant, and so therefore we just never were able to get them participated into the trial. And then lastly, we also, one of the researchers said to me, do you know what? An effect to periods, which is temporary, is not seen as significant enough because it happens so much. <laughs> because how do you measure it? Is it because of the vaccine or because there are stress factors? As Mim was saying yeah. earlier, yeah. just the stress of being part of a trial, just the stress of having a vaccine given to you and you don't know if it's the real one or not because that's that's what randomised double-blind vaccine trials are. But you don't know whether you're getting, you know, the placebo or the actual vaccine so it's really hard to measure in the trials mm -hmm. and it's not seen as something that's because it's short term just like a temperature aches and pains a sore arm it's something that was just as a given like the medical profession I think to a degree thought that well this surely happens and women know about it it's only when women started reporting on social media going, I didn't know about this. But as doctors, we did. Like I said, I knew because I had the flu vaccine and I knew my cycles will become affected. So as a GP, as a, as a healthcare professional, I did know that that's a majority of healthcare professionals who are practicing doctors who give vaccines like I do. I'm a vaccinator. We sort of were expecting this. So it didn't surprise me, which is why then I made a TikTok about it because I was saying, this isn't unusual, guys. It's it's something that's as a given. But I guess what's my bread and butter is not someone else's bread and butter. So that's where you get the dissidence of knowledge. And the 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 amazing thing is with social media is there's very few healthcare professionals on social media who can then debust the myths. So you've got people who are probably just you know reading something online, going, "I had the vaccine and it's affected my cycles," and that's it. So all the other people who log on to that TikTok or YouTube video or Twitter feed will go, oh my goodness, it's that. But what you need is a counter from a healthcare professional because there's very few of us on there because we actually have real life medicine to practice that we don't. Act. So there is that 
there is there is that and not to sound snobbish in any way but and I think that's a failing on our part as healthcare professionals I don't think of it as a public issue I think this is a a communication issue that we need to be dealing with as healthcare professionals mm -hmm. and this is not on it's not good enough for us to see say oh there's all these myths around but then what are we doing yeah. as doctors to educate that you know and we shouldn't be yeah exactly stop them from going around we need to stop the snobbery within the healthcare professional because we historically don't do this so the fact that you guys young educated individuals are doing a podcast to educate people when i was growing up i never had anything like this like literally had nothing like this it was almost seen as a bit of a joke if you saw a doctor on tv trying to teach people about education <laughs> yeah it still is i mean it is still if you see tv doctors are seen as a bit of i would still say there's a bit of a snobbery amongst the uh oh, the healthcare wow. sector like other doctors will probably be a bit snobby about a, a telly i definitely get comments like that so if i go to a meeting and there's lots of gps they'll always make some sort of comment that they saw me on this morning or bbc breakfast or so i, I had a meeting with lots of colleagues recently zoom meeting and uh, one of my senior partners said, oh, and here's Dr. Arif, you know, um, you can probably catch her on a Monday morning at 6.30 on BBC Breakfast because uh, she's up before getting to surgery. Ha ha ha. Really? And it, it's a snide comment just because I'm on telly. So there is yeah. professional jealousy and also because communication skills historically is seen as the bottom bit of the education thing that we should be teaching doctors. Doctors aren't taught how to communicate with their patients, unfortunately. We're really? taught how to practice pathology, but patients aren't pathology. You know, they're not textbook. So this is wow. where we've really got to buck up as healthcare professionals. And the pandemic has shown us you've got to get your communication skills right, because if you're not, then people will not listen to your message and people will spread myths and to detriment of their health might not even take up the treatment that is going to give them much much more benefit like vaccines yeah yeah i honestly didn't expect there to be such a um I, I don't know if it's a distaste but kind of the like you said the snobbery to tv doctors because i always thought of it as it's great that these doctors are coming on tv or tiktok or youtube or whatever it is to talk about these issues because I mean, I'm not a medical student. I wasn't, a me I'm not going to be one, um, but uh, it's too much stress for me. Sorry. Um, but we'll never say never. <laughs> no, it's not going to happen. So I don't know a lot about like things like anatomy and pathology and different diseases and stuff. So I learn a lot of stuff from the YouTube doctors, from people who are on TikTok. And that's me as someone who's got a scientific qualification you know so yeah I, I think what you said is right that we definitely or healthcare professionals and scientists in general as well need to up their communication because otherwise these myths and the misinformation can go rife which unfortunately during COVID-19 it's been an issue hopefully we're shifting away from that mentality because as you said with the COVID-19 it's just brought a surge of doctors onto TikTok and, and social media obviously not as much as we hope but still you know it's beginning to shift <laughs> So hopefully see a change, yeah. It is. I mean, this is where the UN approached me and, you know, about 80 other... Now it's expanded. We started off with seven. Now there's about 80 of us now. But from everybody, from researchers, scientists, people who actually did the trials on the vaccine, people who looked at all the research and data. Um, I've got Dr. Andre, who's part of our team, who looked at all the data as well for the vaccines as well. And he makes TikToks. 
and his TikToks are incredible because I, as a practicing, because being front face as a practicing doctor is very different to the research that's been done behind closed doors. Very different, yeah. And, and so what you do, Mim, in biomedical sciences, the research that you do, actually a lot of it is not going to make biochemistry. sense. Biochemistry. I apologize. The, the research that you do in biochemistry mate that makes no sense to me because i want to know how can i how can i apply it how can i apply it <laughs> to my, I tell to my actual yeah. real life patient that's sitting in front of me because your your by your chemistry and your cell synapsis reactions mean nothing <laughs> to me as a gp because i want to transfer that into hardcore practical medicine on a real life person yeah so do you see how yeah. the difference in scientific research and knowledge is vast and breadth? And mm -hmm. we do need more healthcare professionals. And so the healthcare, mm -hmm. this is why we've got this like amazing flood of doctors. And I'm so happy. It makes me happy as a, as a GP because I want to see a cardiologist. I want to see an obstetrics gynecologist explaining endometriosis properly. I want to see a, a researcher. I want to see someone who looks at pathology, you know, the actual organs. I want to get them to explain to me because this is how I learn so the, mm -hmm. this is the generation Z and the millennials and the the rise in social media for all it's bad but there's phenomenal good on in it as well mm -hmm. absolutely yeah. going back to the clinical trials so you said that when you're reading the research for biochemistry it doesn't make sense to you I feel the same way when it comes to clinical papers so if I read anything that's you know a randomized clinical trial I'm just like, wait, <laughs> what does this mean? Hello, can someone give me the biochemical mechanism, please? That's, that's what I'm used to. But as you said, when it came to the vaccination trials, there was a less women, so there's that research gap. But I think one thing I came across as well, which you touched on a little bit, was that it's hard to design a study to incorporate menstrual cycle changes as like a kind of variable because there are so many things that can impact it. But one question that I've seen all over Twitter, and I, it's a well-meaning question, um, especially now that these changes have been reported, is that why aren't they listed as a side effect for the vaccinations? Because the FDA and the medical regulatory bodies have not actually listed it, that's why. So we have to practice, so this is the other thing that people need to understand. When we give advice, we have to give evidence, clinical-based advice. People self-reporting a problem is actually not actual evidence-based medicine that's a self-report for that person we do not make the fact that the vaccine is a causation of your menstrual cycle changes we definitely do know from plenty of data and trials that the vaccine will cause your arm to feel sore that's a measurable thing the vaccine will cause your temperature to go high because we can check it with a thermometer for mm -hmm. x number of days so that's a measurable thing cycle changes is not have you ever noticed that you're able to devour a bubble tea and that Korean hot dog, but your friend can't even finish half of their tea? Head over to thegrowthmedium.com to find out exactly why. Also, the vaccine, when they looked at the trial, didn't take into account the hormonal changes that happen in the whole sector of different people around. So trans men, perimenopausal women, menopausal women, so we, there's a difference between cause and effect. So therefore, that was never put up as an official symptom, but we know that it can occur. There's a whole host of other symptoms that can occur. So I know that actually mm -hmm. for some of my patients that have had the vaccine, they've reported to me that they feel nauseous afterwards. So 
therefore, when the the big bodies that tell us what side effects we can report, common things are going to be common. They didn't list it because we haven't actually established causation. We know it exists and probably with more data and more people coming through and more research being done that we will know that it is because now the world is primed and looking at it and we've realized that actually women's health is important gender bias medicine has become to the forefront researchers have to start taking notice that our cycles are important to us they're not just throwaway things but i think also i've been reflecting on this a lot i think we're talking more about periods now especially when i was growing up yeah, yeah definitely. especially when i was growing up it was seen as something that was private and personal to the woman. Rarely would I ever hear, even in my surgery, unless it was a patient, but amongst us colleagues, you know, one of us sharing quite happily what our cycles are like, how irregular they are, or if we bleed after sex, or if we're having intermenstrual bleeding. That was incredibly rare. Now, it's like everybody's doing it. So I think that we are normalizing mm -hmm. conversations around periods, which has always been seen as either dirty in some communities or you're seen as unclean. Also seen as that the fact that they're embarrassing, they limit you from doing things. And also they were seen as a bit of a, a frustration. Mm -hmm. You know, if you knew that a girl in your class took a day off school because she'd have painful periods, you were like, oh, for goodness sake, she's a drama queen or rolled your eyes. Because we, we normalize pain. We normalize heavy periods for women. And now suddenly women are saying, actually, why are we normalizing this? This is ridiculous. And good for that. I'm so happy about that. And that's why I do the women's health stuff because we shouldn't be normalizing any of this this should be mm -hmm. part of mainstream conversation mm -hmm. and i guess that also explains why a lot of people they want answers as to the vaccination their period because they know a little bit about their period they want to learn more they want to make sure that everything's okay and i think that's a that's a good thing yeah i think that's the most important thing we're asking questions now and the internet has given us the opportunity to look for answers because before, mm -hmm. the person you'd go to would be probably face-to-face, -face, your mum or your dad, dad if you wanted to. <laughs> but uh, it would be possibly, you know, you, somebody in your family first. And if they had very little knowledge, they would, your mum would probably be like, well, my cycles were like that. So you accept that answer. And so it perpetuates within generations. Or you'd go to the doctor. And in the medicine field at the minute, as part of the UK training, women's health isn't mandatory in general practice. So you choose, you opt into it if you want to do it. So if you don't have an interest in women's health, actually you don't do a lot of it. So I was lucky that I had six months, but I know plenty of my colleagues and trainees who get no training from qualifying as a doctor, go throughout general practice, throughout their rotations in hospital, get to being qualified GP, and they might have never done one bimanual or a speculum. It's because it's not, it's, not compul it's not mandatory to do it. It's compulsory. It is concerning, exactly. This is why I talk about this a lot because uh, it is That's very concerning. concerning because I know a lot of male colleagues, particularly when I did A&E, if there was a woman that had a, abdominal pain which sounded slightly gynecological, they need a chaperone, they need to call someone in, they need to get the equipment. And by that time, my male colleague would probably say to me, Nagat, do you want to see this patient? Because it requires less hassle for you. We're on a time pressure in a &E. So it's expected, the terminology in medicine, and Sarah, you'll get to know this in medicine as well, it's expected that you'll have some knowledge. That's it. But textbook knowledge and clinical experience are two separate huge things, as you know, Sarah, and that takes time for you to learn. And there are some things that you just never see in a textbook, but you just clinically learn. And that comes from do one, 
see one, no, see one, do one, teach one is how it's done in medicine. That's literally the mantra that you do. So the way, that's how we teach medicine to each other. But if you're, if you're with a colleague or your trainer just never saw women, then you're never going to see women. And the, the health sector hasn't actually factored that in. And so we are where we are, unfortunately, where women don't get answers. So they go to their GP. Their GP might have no knowledge of periods and might just say to them, oh, I, I'll, I think this is okay. And the woman will go away, none the wiser. Hence why we've got issues with endometriosis taking an average of seven years to diagnose. We've got menorrhagia, menorrhagia being poorly managed and women are expected to put up with their pain or we've normalized pain. It's okay to have cramps and severe pain and take days off work. Actually, no, it's not. And we actually do not pick up perimenopause and the symptoms of menopause when one in four women will feel suicidal when they're in the, having severe symptoms of the menopause. That's absolutely awful. So asking questions is always good. <laughs> yeah. We touched on this a little bit earlier and we'll just briefly go over this. We talked about the gender research gap and the gender medical gap. And that's generally the idea that women make up much... So with the gender research gap, it's the idea that women make up much less of the senior positions in scientific research. And unfortunately, this seems to be kind of level across all of STEM in biochemistry, like my undergrad degree, it was pretty much 60% women and 40% men. But as you get higher and higher, it kind of funnels down so that there's like much less women. And we talked about this earlier, we talked about it in a different episode as well. And we talked about the leaky pipeline on our Instagram. And some people have suggested that this might be something that's impacted study design. Now, as I said earlier, it's so hard, and as um, Nagat said earlier as well, it's so hard to put the menstrual cycle as a variable um, and measure it. But do you think if there were more women in senior positions, they would have designed the studies in such a way to, to involve the menstrual cycle? Yeah, definitely. I, I agree with mm-hmm. you on that, Min. I've said it before, and I get shot down every single time for saying it, but unfortunately, we have misogyny within the healthcare sector. Women are only seen as part of procreation. Once you procreate and you get to the other side of it, then that's it. You're really not fit for purpose anymore. And I know that sounds really harsh, me saying it, but we see that all the time. And it's, okay, maybe it's not just the healthcare sector, but Mm. there is. But then we also have internalized misogyny. So misogyny within women groups. Classically, you know, we'll say, you just have to look at any household at all. If a woman is having symptoms or... God forbid she suffered a miscarriage. The The common thing is, well, I had a miscarriage, put up with it, grin and bear it, suck it up. This is exactly what we expect. Yeah. This is to be expected. This is what happens with us women. There's a quote that I read that was really interesting, actually, that said, a woman wrote, I saw my mother go through her problems. I'm going through my problems. I'll be damned if I see my daughter go through this. That's giving me goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, and I and I have that on my wall in my room in my clinical room and I think about it every single time I see a woman in my surgery because why is it that if a woman has a miscarriage or menstrual problems or gynecological issues that we ask her to put up with it and grin and bear it we don't offer women pain relief to have a coil insertion because it's seen as gas and air is too expensive. So we give them paracetamol ibuprofen. We give women countless amounts of hormonal therapy and say, do you know what? And if you're getting side effects, grin and bear it. 
we haven't actually found a solution to diagnosing endometriosis early until she's got adhesions that can only be seen on a laparoscopy. Women's menopausal symptoms are ignored. So women are told all the time, grin and bear it. So if I, as a woman, grin and bear it, what am I going to teach my daughter in the future? That surely has to change and that cycle has to break. And that will come from women allowing other women and validating their experience. Their lived in experience of pain has to be validated. Not saying put up with it. So that has to come from us as women. So women supporting women first and then allowing us to be empowered enough to fight the system. And it's happening. It is happening. And I see it happening. Mm -hmm. And it is gradually happening. Look at you guys. You're doing this. Look at look at myself. I'm talking about these issues which were never spoken about. I get so much abuse actually on social media for talking about periods as a Muslim woman. That's the first thing I get. You're wearing a I see that a lot with a lot of these yeah. when you use faith against someone to quieten them, that's not even just a misinterpretation of that faith. But actually what you're doing is you're perpetuating the misogyny and then the internalized misogyny because other yeah. women will say, Yeah, Islam says don't talk about this. Yeah. I think a theme so far that we've had for this season is that women historically and still to this day we're silenced for the pain that we feel there's a misunderstanding of how our bodies work for a lot of things partly because medical research has been done on men for i believe until the 80s i think it was only the 80s um when i don't i don't know if it was the fda but they encouraged women to come up and join uh, studies and we did an episode about endometriosis. We spoke to someone about that. And one thing that she was saying was that her workplace was very supportive with the pain management. They were t educating their employees about it running and workshops running workshops and, and stuff. Yeah. And that's such a beneficial thing because her employer has an understanding of her condition. She's able to take time if she needs it. And it also just empowers women with that knowledge and that comfort as well that yes my symptoms or what I'm going through is being acknowledged and I can act appropriately with that so I definitely agree with you about opening up the conversation so just to end this episode do you have any last messages tips or myths you want to bust re in regard to the COVID-19 vaccine periods and <laughs> by extension fertility although that doesn't really is not really impacted so so I think that's really important to say, and there are studies to back this up now. There was a study that was done which showed the analysis of sex hormones and menstruation in COVID-19, women and childbearing age, which, are, which is a really good study to be aware of to your listeners. And it showed that there's no impact of the COVID vaccine onto female fertility. The other thing is, is that I see a lot of myths saying that it causes miscarriages as well. And I just need to demystify this. The COVID-19 vaccine, there is no causation of the COVID-19 vaccine causing miscarriages. Let me put it into perspective. I work as a GP. I've been a doctor for 14 years. Miscarriages, unfortunately, very tragically common. There's three of us on this podcast. One of us would have had a miscarriage. I'm going to put my hand up because I'm a mum of three. I've had a miscarriage. And I very openly say that. I'm so sorry about that. So that wasn't because I'd had a vaccine or anything. Unfortunately, before 12 weeks of our pregnancy, as women, we do have these anomalies within the cells that we have. And therefore, you are going to have a miscarriage because that wasn't a viable or sustainable pregnancy. But I can understand why it puts up women's anxiety. So the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecology has advised that women are, if they're trying to get pregnant, still safe to have the vaccine. And if they are pregnant, wait until after 12 weeks of their pregnancy to have the vaccine. 
Women who are pregnant are recommended to get both doses of the vaccine and it, it's safe because the risks of the vaccine are less and the benefits are far more. If you actually get COVID-19, then actually what happens is, is that we are seeing more mums go into early labour because they're really sick from COVID-19. So we are preventing something called preterm labour. The other thing that I see a lot of myths around is that the vaccine will affect male infertility as well. So men, what was the term that I heard? That it, it, it um, will ruin the quality of their sperm. Actually, weirdly enough, they've done loads of trials on this. So they've done data because it's a measurable thing. As opposed to cycles, it's actually very easy to measure male sperm. So you'd give them a vaccine. Two weeks later, you get them to ejaculate into a pot, have a look underneath the microscope. And if the motility, mobility, quality of the sperm and the volume are all absolutely fine, then the vaccine has had nothing to do with it. And we've seen that from multiple trials over decades and decades of other vaccines. But we realize from those data and studies that are going on, it does not affect your sperm so men listening to this podcast be reassured about that it does not change your dna and i hope that was very clear from the start of our uh, podcast that it doesn't do any of that there are no chips in the vaccine bill gates is not tracking you i'm really sorry to say this but your life is not that interesting my life is not even that interesting and i've had both doses and yeah it's been nearly you know nine months since i've had my vaccine because i was the first cohort of people to get the vaccine as a healthcare professional and i can definitely tell you bill gates has not taken money out of my account um, or tracked my whereabouts you mean he hasn't knocked on your door yet no, not yet. No. So <laughs> he hasn't had you. <laughs> um, and and then the other thing that people always say is that, but my own immune system is strong enough and it's natural and healthy, right? Okay, let me put this one to bed because <laughs> I have nothing against complementary medicine. I'm a huge fan of it. I advocate complementary medicine all the time, but. If you allow, everybody's immune system is different and everybody's natural immunity is very different as well. If you allow the virus to go through a community naturally, air quotation marks, then the number of deaths that we get is far, far more than actually the protection of herd immunity that we get. And we've seen that. We tried that. Okay, we've tried herd immunity before the vaccine came out. We've had over 130 thousand deaths in the UK and millions of deaths across the world and so therefore the idea that actually having your natural immunity build up is not just about you I'm afraid so that selfish mentality of me and nobody else matters just doesn't cut it because we're a community and we're a society and we have to not just protect ourselves but protect others and having the vaccines means your antibodies build up your chances of getting post-viral complications are less but we know that transmission rate of the virus to the next person is also less as well and then lastly people always say oh but it causes clots and myocarditis and it causes this right your risk of getting clots is there anyway there's three of us on this podcast. My risk of getting a clot is one in a thousand. All right. I'm an older woman than you guys who are young spring chickens. But I'm, my risk of clots is there. Your risk of having a vaccine is minuscule from the vaccine is minuscule. Risk, your risk of getting myocarditis is minuscule. The leading professor who looks up post-vaccine myocarditis still says the vaccine is far, far safer than having COVID-19, which gives you far, far more risk of having clots and myocarditis. So overall, the benefits of having the vaccine are far more than not having it. So please get vaccinated.
And on that note, thank you so much for coming to talk to us, Nagat. It's really, really, really informative. We learned a lot and we put to bed a lot of myths. Thank God. <laughs> so as always, the guests, Nagat's socials will be linked in the description along with our resources. And um, whilst you're here, make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok and Nagat as well. And until next week, bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Let us know your thoughts down below in the review section. We love hearing from our audience. Absolutely. Also, check us out on Instagram at The Growth Medium. We have loads of infographics and fun reels for you to share with friends and family. And don't forget to follow us too. If you have a topic you're passionate about or a story you want to share, then come and join us. Send in your application over on thegrowthmedium.com. Oh, and we've got some freebies and articles and lots more on there too. Come back next Monday for another episode of The Growth Medium. Bye. Bye.